Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we take the lid off the fascinating history of Tupperware, from the small-time inventor who created it to the woman who made it a household name through those house parties. As the company now struggles to survive, we look into the big impact the iconic brand had on North American culture and beyond. Ryan Reynolds, you know him. He put out a birthday video on his very popular social media account today for fellow actor and business partner Rob McElhaney. And it got us thinking about the importance of pronouncing names because the whole video is about how no one can pronounce Rob's family name properly and why new technology is making it easier than ever for all of us to make sure we get other people's names right. The Prime Minister's Chief of Staff made her much-anticipated appearance in front of a committee of MPs looking into allegations of Beijing's interference in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections today. The big questions in front of Katie Telford, what did the PMO know, when, and what did they do about it? But the big moment delivered few answers. We find out why. But first, a major volcanic eruption in Russia's Far East is having a major impact on this side of the Pacific, specifically on flight schedules. We find out more about the volcano itself, where it is, and why is that ash cloud moving thousands of kilometers away from it? Let's begin tonight in Russia's Kamchatka Peninsula. You may recognize that name. I immediately thought of a risk board. It's way over in the east of Russia, closer to Alaska than it is to Moscow, obviously. And this huge volcanic eruption that happened there early Tuesday. It is one of Russia's most active volcanic regions. The Shivalish volcano uh, spewed cl- an ash cloud of some 20 kilometers into the sky. Uh, the fallout apparently visible from space. Villages in the area, if you've seen the pictures, it looks like there was a massive snowstorm in that immediate region. They're coated in volcanic ash. There are images online of people making ash angels, like snow angels, in the ash on the ground. It had all kinds of impacts in the region. Uh, But the ash cloud itself has been caused for concern thousands of kilometers away in Alaska and even northwestern BC. Uh, The ash cloud passed over the Aleutian Islands and across the Bering Sea and on Thursday was largely concentrated in the Gulf of Alaska and the North Pacific Ocean. But parts of it apparently have also drifted into parts of BC and even Washington State, I was reading today, just have to clarify that. Uh, Air Canada, WestJet, Alaska Airlines have cancelled dozens of flights, mainly the latter in Alaska, including dozens more today, citing safety concerns as volcanic ash, of course, can cause jet engines to uh, cause a jet engine to shut down. Remember all that from the Icelandic uh, eruption uh, uh, in the last decade. Uh, There are warnings further eruptions could further impact uh, even this far away. And joining me now is volcanologist Glenn William Jones. He's a professor and chair of the Department of Earth Sciences at Simon Fraser University. He's also the co-director for the Center for Natural Hazards Research. Glenn, thanks so much. My pleasure. This is a big one. I mean, we, I, it's funny, you know, when you start looking into something and realize, well, of course, it's a, I didn't never realize that that area is one of the most active volcano areas in the world. Yeah, I mean, the, the plate tectonics in that area is really complex um, and it's, it's super dynamic. So you can just, you know, connect all the dots to all of these volcanoes on the northern part of the Pacific Ring of Fire, you know, going up from Japan all the way across uh, into Alaska. And of course, we have all of these uh, sort of transpolar um, air flights going right over the area. Right. And, and, and again, so tell me what happened early Tuesday, because it, like, it sounds like it was quite a, big, quite a big blow, to use the non-scientific term. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a larger eruption than they've seen uh, from Shevaluch, uh probably in the last uh, 60 to 70 years. Um, you know, this volcano is extremely active. Uh, it's been almost continually erupting since 99 and, you know, a few pauses in between. Um, but um, last week, it basically just uh, sort of ramped up. And, and this is not surprising. Volcanoes can go through these phases. Um, material can build up. The pressure can build up within the system. And eventually, you know, you can go into these, these very large eruptions. Um, so as, as you mentioned, there was, there was ash um, ejected, you know, these incredible mushroom cloud uh, or umbrella cloud uh, features that we see. Um, going up to 10 to 20 kilometers. Um, and of course, I think now it's sort of settled down to maybe 8 to 10 kilometers, but that's about 30,000 feet at the, the level at which um, uh, most commercial airlines fly. Right. And of course, I think we all got a crash course. No pun intended. That's a bad use of words. But we, we, all got a, we all got a lesson in how this impacts aircrafts uh, back in Iceland 10 years ago. Exactly. The, the eruption of Ayayefjokul uh, in 2010 led to billions of dollars of, uh, you know, of lost, um, uh, not wages, but lost income and, and profits just because those aircraft were, were grounded. Um, and you know, what we're seeing now with, with some of the delays in, in northwestern BC and, and Paris, it's because of this concern that these fine particles of volcanic ash uh, can interact with with the jet engines, and it's important to to realize. I mean, we think about ash, and inevitably people think about a cigarette or, or sort of barbecue uh, type thing, you know. But it's not wood. This is pulverized rock and frozen magma shattered into basically volcanic glass. So you can imagine that getting into jet engines uh, is being incredibly, dang- you know, damaging and dangerous potentially. Now. It- Tell me a bit about what's happened with this ash cloud, because it seems like it's drifted an awful long way from where it began, which I guess isn't all that surprising. But is that further than usual? Because it is something like 4,000 kilometers. Yeah, but once you get, and so it's not unusual if when you get into these uh, large sort of high elevation um, eruptions. So if we're getting ash up into the stratosphere, then these high altitude winds can can pick up that ash and, and really take it um, you know, many, many thousands of kilometers and, in fact, you know, around the world um, in finer and finer concentrations as you get, obviously, further away. So the ash is always raining down, settling out, um, but, the you know, obviously, the biggest particles are going to drop out close to the volcano, but the very fine material can stay aloft for, for many thousands of kilometers. Just looking at some of the reporting on it, specifically from Alaska, but we we are pretty adept at at spotting it as it moves. Is that right? That's right, and and this is really uh, thanks to the the sort of the satellite age, um, and in part because of some close calls uh, back in the eighties with seven four sevens flying into volcanic ash plumes. The radar on the on the um, front of the aircraft does not see volcanic ash. So there was a big uh, move by the scientific community to bring in satellite monitoring. So there's a global connected, um, coordinated uh, system called the Volcanic Ash Advisory Center, VAAC. And there's centers around the world, and they coordinate using satellite imagery to track volcanic ash plumes so that aircraft can be diverted, um, you know, basically should an eruption occur. So from space, you can look down and you can see it, especially these big eruptions. 
Yeah, I, I remember one case in particular. I think it was a it was a British Airways flight flying over Indonesia at one point that sort of woke everyone up to this to this uh, to this potential hazard or to this major hazard. What's going to happen to this cloud now? Because again, I was reading reports today, and it's kind of hard to pin down what exactly has happened to it. Uh, that it's sort of still the majority of it's still sort of sitting up in northern Alaska, but that some mm-hmm. has already dissipated over here towards northwestern BC, and then there was mention of even Washington State. So it's moving around. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, because depending on the, the, the winds, um, you know, it could move, move down the coast uh, a certain amount. And that's why, uh, you know, these uh, issues of, of sort of uh, canceled flights uh, up around Terrace. Uh, right. Exactly where that's happening. This is where the meteorological models uh, really come into, uh, into play to, to try to, you know, figure this out. Um, and of course, you know, the eruption has, has happened, but you know, this volcano has been erupting since can, almost continuously since 1999. So there's no certainty that this is the end of it. Uh, we can get these big bursts, things can calm down, and then you know it, it can sort of start up again. So, uh, so the, you know, this is the kind of thing we have to keep watching. So a big burst is not necessarily a prelude to a bigger one. Not necessarily, um, and 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 this is, I mean, this kind of volcano. It's actually fairly similar to to what we saw with the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens. Similar style of volcano, very sticky, viscous magma called andesite and dacite. Um, so much more viscous than the classic lava flows that we see coming out of Hawaii. Um, and because it's sticky, you know, think of squeezing out a tube of toothpaste. You've got this core of viscous material doesn't want to flow the gases can't get out of it easily so the pressure builds and then eventually we get these uh these large explosions more pressure potentially bigger explosions uh, Glenn, it always reminds me of, of being in Edmonton back when Mount St. Helens uh, blew in 1980 and thinking about the work that you've done. You've been sounding the alarm on this for a long time now about just how, and this is a reminder of the ring of fire, about how well or not well prepared we are here uh, because we are in an active volcano, volcano, volcanic zone, even though we don't often talk about it. Yeah, and you know, it's, the, it's not the kind of thing that, that Canadians really think about because our volcanoes have not been nearly as active as you know, say what we're seeing here in, in, in Russia or, or you know, for that matter, down in, uh, say, Oregon and Washington State. Um, and But we do do have them. You know, we're part of that, that ring of fire. Um, we've got active volcanoes. Uh, in fact, uh, just northwest of Pemberton, uh, Mount Meager uh, is a volcano uh, that we're currently working on. It's quiet. There's, you know, volcanic gases, very, very low levels just coming up through the, the ice. Um and that erupted about 2,400 years ago. So that's geologically yesterday. Um, but the, the trick with the Canadian volcanoes is we don't actually know a lot about them um, because they haven't been so active in, uh, in sort of you know, modern recorded uh, history. Um, and they're, they're remote. They're hard to get to. You spend quite a bit of time in Mount Meager, right? Are, are you, there was an early warning system that, you were ta- that, I, that I was listening to you talk about in another forum. Yeah, we're not quite at the early warning system yet, but we're we're trying to get towards that. So we're building up slowly but surely. Uh, we've been getting some cameras on uh, where these uh, volcanic gases are melting through the ice and trying to uh, to get the seismometers um, on there. Um, really, where we're, we're at at the national level is uh, moving towards um, implementing satellite monitoring. Uh, actually using the the radar sat uh, system you know developed by uh, by the Canadian uh, government um, because we've got a big country that is uh, you know and, and these volcanoes are quite remote 
Um, what's important to note is, you know, 2,400 years ago sounds like a long time, um, but only, seven, you know, about 300 years ago, uh, just northwest of Terrace, we had uh, Canada's second most uh, or youngest eruption, uh, the um, uh, eruption of Siax, a volcano right. which formed the, the Niskalava beds. Um, and younger still, um, just uh, northwest of Stewart, there's um, a lava fork. Uh, so another lava flow style volcano, um, again, fairly remote. Um, but we know very little about these these young volcanoes uh, because they're just they're hard to get to. They're um, they're remote. Uh, it's expensive to to work on them. Yeah, and I was reading that uh, that the that the most sort of the, the biggest at risk volcanoes in America. A bunch of them are not too far from 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 where you are right now on the Lower Mainland. I mean Mount Absolutely. Baker specifically. Yeah, Mount Baker, um, and we're we're in fact trying working with the um, the Geological Survey of Canada um, using that approach that the United States Geological Survey has done, sort of ranking their volcanoes. Uh, my colleague uh, Melanie Kelman did the same thing for the Canadian volcanoes, and Meagher is is one of the, the high-ranked uh, volcanoes, but also Garibaldi, um, uh, because of the proximity to population, like in in uh, Whistler and Squamish. So we actually have a project uh, going uh, started up last summer, trying to go into the geological history and better understand these these big volcanoes right on our doorstep, um, because. Yeah. You know, we don't know what they're going to do in the future. Yeah, and, and I think those of us who are around to see, who remember about St. Helens, remember just how, what can happen if, if, if and when, right? Uh, Glenn William Jones, thanks you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Well, you know, Ottawa is a bit like, uh, what's it like? Ottawa and committees. Committees, they're a bit like a game you everyone hypes a lot, and it turns out to be a bit of a dud. And it happens again, a bit like the Super Bowl often. Maybe not this year. It happens again and again and again. So you talk about someone making an appearance at a committee in Ottawa. MPs gather around. They get all hyped up. The person in question, in this case, the Prime Minister's longtime Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, uh, was appearing before MPs at committee today. And there was a lot made about what we could possibly learn about allegations of foreign interference in our 2019 and 2021 elections. What did the Prime Minister know? When? What did they do about it? And of course you knew because of the forum, you weren't going to learn much at all. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Part of it was because the MPs, specifically the Conservative MPs, asked ridiculous, I mean, just questions without, I mean, questions they should never have asked, right? I mean, they just, they ask the worst questions at these things, because really, they're not there to find out anything. They're there to grandstand. And that's what they were doing today, trying to make uh, Katie Telford look bad. When she essentially started the whole thing by saying, listen, I can't really say much about any of this because of security implications. I can't talk about what I know, uh, because I can't in a public forum. And that's always been the problem with how these, these, whole, uh, thing, these whole affairs are set up. All that being said, okay, so the Liberals filibustered for days to try to prevent this from happening. It's hard to understand why, because at the end of it, nothing really happened when she, when she appeared. But she did appear uh, in front of the uh, committee looking into allegations of foreign interference by Beijing in particular in our elections. Katie Telford spent two hours answering questions from MPs on the procedure and House Affairs Committee, mainly about how aware she was, she and the Prime Minister were of allegations, including that Beijing was bankrolling as many as 11 candidates uh, in, in a federal election, and mainly liberals, but also some conservatives. When did they know it and what did they do about it, right? But of course, it's not a courtroom. 
And conservative MPs in particular tried mostly unsuccessfully to pin down the prime minister's right hand on those very issues. Telford repeatedly pointing out the constraints that she had of her top security clearance and telling MPs she could not comment on sensitive intelligence matters in a public setting. You want a taste of it? You didn't have to watch it. Just listen to what she had to say in these two quick clips. That was the subject matter of those series of briefings in January of 2022. Are you confirming that? No, Madam Speaker, I can't. Unfortunately, I can't provide information about what I have or have not been briefed on um, in an intelligence setting um, or in a public setting about intelligence. I, yeah, I can't, I can't speak to that information. You, you can't I'm sorry. speak to the information because you don't know why. Can't you speak to this information? No, and because, as I said before, as frustrating as it is for both of all of us, um, is uh, I can't get into confirming, let alone denying uh, information and going beyond the bounds of the security heads who were here before me. And in that sense, she's right. I mean, she said it right off the bat. I can't talk about this stuff in a public forum. You've had other people in front of you who uh, know more about this stuff, and you've asked them, and they've told you what they know, or at least as much as they can say in this forum. Uh, and I can't say anything more. So it was essentially a pretty futile exercise. Uh, she did say a few things that were interesting, though. She did mention that intelligence briefings are provided to the prime minister by a special advisor and that nothing is hidden from Justin Trudeau. No, there's nothing. There, if I'm understanding you correctly, there is nothing that is ever kept from the prime minister. Certainly not by me. Well, joining us now with more, this is Christian Luprecht. He's a professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University, a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft. Christian, thanks for your time. Welcome back. Yeah. Hello, Ben. Good evening. So did you, I mean, I watched all of it because, I mean, that's that's what you do, right? And I sat there thinking, oh, just ask her a more general question that she would have to think about instead of hammering away at the same stuff where she's going to invoke the same security, I mean, justifiably invoke the same uh, security rationale. But what did you make of it? Well, I think it was always going to be a spectacle in the sense that, uh, you know, they managed to get the chief of staff uh, hauled before committee. Uh, but it was clear that the government strategy from the outset, unlike SNC-Lavalin, was going to be to hide behind national security and intelligence and basically say, we can't tell you anything. We're not going to show you anything. Um, and that shows that the government believes it can control the flow of information and it can continue to control the narrative. There was some speculation that Miss um, Telford might fall on her sword the way Jerry Butts had done. Um, and of course, she did not do that. And I think she didn't do that indicates that the government believes it can survive this, and that's because it can survive the, uh, the it can control the information and the narrative. Um, I, I'm not sure that that is the best strategy by the government to take in this case, because of course we already have at least one person who, in contravention of the Security Information Act, is committed uh, to leaking classified information to uh, classified intelligence assessments uh, to the media, and I, I worry profoundly that this approach to stonewalling completely and basically saying there's nothing to see here, we can't talk about anything, uh, that that might possibly motivate this individual or other individuals to provide information that uh, should not be provided by those channels to the media in an effort to provide greater debate, transparency, um, or partisanship, whatever it is the motivation might be. I'm also dismayed that I think Ms. Telford uh, may have not entirely perhaps represented remarks in the way 
um, that might have been appropriate, that a plausible deniability is a standard approach that staffers take with prime ministers, that precisely prime ministers at times are not given certain information uh, so that uh, they can genuinely say, I did not know. So now that the government has said that the prime minister knew everything, nothing was ever hidden from the prime minister, uh, that's an interesting strategy because it means the prime minister, whether it's during an election or whether it's in question period or so forth, can certainly not say, I had no idea. So clearly the information here is the prime minister was fully apprised. There were no information gaps. Uh, and the prime minister, uh, by consequence, then was able to always make the best and the most informed decision uh, possible based on the information available at the time. And that information appears to be to have done very little. Yeah, I mean, t the Global News is reporting that he'd received at least five formal briefings from top national security officials on foreign interference since 2021. And that was a document shared with the House of Commons Committee today. So clearly he's been been in the loop. Uh, I was interested also in the sense that, that what uh, some of the stuff that Katie Telford had to say today, one of the things that stood out, I mean, she was asked about whether or not we need an inquiry, um, quite pointedly, actually. And then she said, well, you know, the David Johnson will be making his recommendations soon enough um, as to whether or not there should be a public inquiry. Uh, and, and she kind of made the case for a public inquiry just by the way she answered the questions. Well, I mean, as you know, I had a, an opinion piece that, uh, that appeared in the Globe and Mail on this particular issue. And I believe that, look, um, what we've seen generally from the political class in this country on national security, given that these concerns about interference date back to before the current government, but you see a current government seems to be have been particularly slow rolling any reaction to it, given that, I mean, the first mention in a CSIS annual report uh, was in 1995 about concerns about uh, Chinese intelligence, Chinese espionage and uh, Chinese triads and sort of possible collusion. Um, that uh, I think the national security culture in this country is relatively immature, uh, whether it comes to foreign interference uh, or what I would call, I mean, this goes beyond interference. I mean, we have a hostile state actor actively trying to undermine our democratic institution. I actually think this is not interference. This is subversion. Uh, this is, uh, is, is subterfuge. Um, so uh, it's, this is precisely what we were concern, concerned about during the Cold War when CSIS had uh, a subversion mandate, which was abandoned in the aftermath of the Cold War. The government has not reinstated that mandate for CSIS. So CSIS is limited in what it can do on this particular file uh, because it doesn't have an explicit mandate to deal with this file. It only has a mandate to deal with espionage, which is different qualitatively, uh, conceptually, but also quantitatively. Uh, from uh, uh, so espionage and foreign interference are two very different, uh, very different problems. Uh, the government has not sort of raised thresholds for possibilities of investigations and uh, either on the security intelligence or criminal intelligence side. Uh, and there was no indication from Ms. Telford, for instance, that these are discussions that the government may have had or or so. These are all, I mean, things that you could disclose that here's some of the options we explored and we decided to discard these options. Here's the reason why we discarded these options, or at least for now. So certainly, I think uh, public scrutiny and the public inquiry would allow us to have a better sense of uh, what the options are and what the debates are. The problem is, of course, that that will punt out any meaningful action beyond the next election uh, and leaves us vulnerable again. I mean, clearly China's maximalist aims um, uh, are to actively 
manipulate uh, the outcomes of certain writings. Uh, we're told that the election outcome wasn't changed, but there's certainly concern that the outcome in certain writings would have been changed. And so the silver lining of this whole conversation should certainly be uh, a broad public conversation about the immaturity of the political class in this country uh, and uh, the intelligence culture and the approach that government uh, takes towards intelligence. I mean, Look, uh, this is a democratically elected government that loves to have a values-based foreign policy, that loves to tout Canadian values. And here we have an authoritarian, hostile state actor actively undermining those values and those institutions in our own country. Uh, and the government uh, is uh, rather surprising with that, to the extent to which it is willing to go not to act on this particular uh, challenge. Always nice to have Christian Luprecht along on this Friday night, a regular guest of ours. We're talking about Katie Telford, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, appearing in front of committee today to answer, or not really answer, questions about uh, what the Prime Minister's office knew, when it knew it, and what it did about it when it came to allegations of election interference by Beijing. Uh, Christian's been mentioning an op-ed that he wrote in the Globe and Mail uh, that's out today, talking about how we really need to examine how our intelligence services work for a much much changed uh, world these days. I mean, CSIS, uh, it's been a long time, as he was mentioning, uh, since they've sort of re-examined exactly what their mandate is. I was surprised to hear Katie Telford say today, and because this has come up a lot, about uh, these leaks that have been published both by Global News and by the Globe and Mail, that, uh, that somehow alarms were being sounded and people weren't listening. And uh, Katie Telford made it pretty clear today that there are mechanisms, mechanisms whereby alarms can be sounded by CSIS and that they haven't been. I mean, that's at least what I took away from what she had to say. And that I found fairly surprising. Yeah, so look, I mean, uh, it is ultimately up to the government to interpret the assessments that it is provided with. And we live in a democracy where it's up to the government to decide whether to act and how to act on those assessments. And so clearly uh, the government's interpretation of the assessments that they're being provided is, is that, you know, none of this is all too concerning and uh, and we can all sort of move on. Um, other people might draw different conclusions from the very same assessments. Uh, and given that we only have uh, episodic uh, pieces uh, of a puzzle where most of the pieces are missing, um, uh, I think Ms. Telford decided to get out ahead of the story and basically say, look, I'll draw the rest of the picture for you. Uh, and there's not a whole lot to see, or at least sort of that's our interpretation of the information with which uh, we were provided. Now, let's also remember, she's, of course, testifying before uh, PROC, so, so the Procedures and uh, and House of Rules Committee. She's not testifying before uh, the House of Commons uh, Public Safety and National Security Committee, for instance. She's not testifying before the Special Committee uh, on the Canada-China relationship. Uh, and so I think this was also somewhat strategic uh, by the government, which meant that uh, Ms. Telford could generally stick to the procedural aspects of uh, the issues related here rather than any substantive issues of uh, public safety, national security, um, uh, or, or perhaps uh, broader issues sort of related to China and the China relationship. Uh, so, uh, and I think Ms. Telford basically stuck to uh, to to the framework within which uh, she was uh, she was testifying. Uh, right. So, uh, the the she can't be she can't be in some ways faulted for having drawn a very narrow remit of what she was going to say.
Yeah, and it, it makes you wonder why they resisted for so long. This was going to be the outcome. I mean, I see. I know. I know politically why they resisted uh, having her do this, but it seems like such a. It would have been such a. It looks so bad to filibuster, and then to have this be the outcome. It seemed like it was uh, all for naught. Well, I think they wanted to control the story on this, and they wanted to get the budget out before they had this testimony. They didn't want this, I think, to swamp uh, the budget and the narrative that they wanted to put out on the budget. Uh, and so this allowed them to punt it. Uh, I think there was also a risk, perhaps, that they felt if if Ms. Telford was going to testify, it could perhaps then trigger some sort of uh, confidence motion or some sort of mechanism that the government wouldn't be able to control. Uh, and so getting the budget over the line now means that there's going to be less pressure to um, exert confidence sort of mechanisms around this particular issue, because, of course, it's not a spending issue. So that means uh, that uh, any votes on the issue aren't uh, are, are unlikely to be confidence votes. And so it means that the government has basically survived for uh, for another year here. It also means the further they can punt this issue out to the spring, it means that Parliament is going to rise. And I think just like some of the other um, uh, uh, headwinds that this government has run into over the years, uh, it believes it can ride this out and sort of hope that it can change the, change the channel, uh, that right. the media and Canadians will grow tired of this and, uh, and, and it'll just uh, peter out. Yeah, their their favorite period between May twenty fourth and 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 Labor Day essentially, right? Uh, a, a quick aside on this one, just because this came up today and it's related to uh, China's influence or or at least its its uh, interference in the Canadian system. Uh, the Trudeau Foundation's been under a lot of scrutiny over one hundred forty thousand dollars that uh, that it took in donations back in twenty sixteen, uh, allegedly from someone with deep ties to China. It looks like they've managed to finally return the money, but today we found out that the foundations asked the Auditor General to look into the donation. And that seems like uh, it seems like the right move, but I'm wondering if it's come too late. Well, it's puzzling to me. Why are you going to ask the Auditor General? You can hire any of the large accounting firms or any smaller yeah. firm to be They've done to that do too. a financial that too. audit. <laughs> right. They're um, doing that in parallel. So, yeah, they're doing the two. So, so it's not clear what the value added of the Auditor General here is, other than perhaps if they feel, I mean, the foundation feels that the legislation makes it difficult for them to return the funds because it's not clear who the actual donor is, and then they feel they're going to run afoul of Canadian law. So presumably asking the Auditor General isn't really about an audit. It's about trying to get clarity on what the legal situation is, and then perhaps sort of getting, getting, getting the law changed. Uh, but I'm not sure what the value is of Dragging, uh, dragging the Auditor General into this broader conversation, given that foundations are not generally are not subject uh, to the Auditor General, uh, and 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 given that there's no direct government funding of the foundation, rather it's an endowment that has already been provided to the foundation. Um, so uh, this this rather suggests to me that there's some real governance struggles within the foundation uh, when boards sort of make decisions that seem rather puzzling to any of us who sit on boards and, uh, right, and, and, and to see governments happening. Christian, as always, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. What's in a name, the old saying goes? Well, it turns out there is a lot in a name. Today, 15 million people at least have seen a Ryan Reynolds video. You know him. It's a birthday song for fellow actor and business partner Rob McElhenney. And it's all about why nobody can properly pronounce his family name. Sure, he's got a pretty face that people know they know. 
they think they recognize him from his big time TV show. But despite the accolades, despite the load of fame, one thing that they do not know is how to say his name. Pronouncing all those N's and E's and H's can perplex him. So here's a little birthday gift from all your mates in Wrexham. It's McElhenney, McElhenney. What ways to massacre and mispronounce it? There are many. McElhenney. It's McElhenney. 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 There was doubt. Now there won't be any. It's McElhenney. Now, many of us have names that cause issues. My name, growing up where I did in Montreal in the 70s, in a French-speaking neighborhood, I went to a French-speaking school, and nobody could pronounce O'Hara Byrne properly. I spent most of my youth known as Ben Rarabirn because they just couldn't get the Y and the beer and the burn properly, and the O-H-A-R-A just <laughs> was too much. You get used to it, right? I never corrected it. I didn't really think much about it, to be honest, at the time. But as I got older, I thought, maybe they should have learned to pronounce my name properly. It's not that tough. But it can be a real deal breaker in big moments, your first day on the job, a graduation ceremony, a media interview like this one. We've all been faced with names that are difficult to pronounce, but not everyone considers the consequences of mispronouncing a name. Getting someone's name right allows individuals to feel seen and respected. It is important. And there are all sorts of things out there now to help you out when it comes to trying to pronounce names properly, including devices or programs such as Name Coach. And Praveen Shanbog, who is the founder of C and CEO of Name Coach, joins me now. Thanks so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. Thank you for having me here. I hope I got your. You know, I, I went back and listened to different things that you, different interviews you'd done to make sure I got your name right. So I'm, I hope I pronounced it properly. Yeah, uh, you, you got it perfect. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, uh, yeah we got to get you some of the name coach software too. Yes, exactly, exactly. I mean, the, the Ryan Reynolds video is all a bit of tongue in cheek, but it is an important conversation and one that you've been having, having quite seriously with a lot of organizations. Yeah, that's right. Um, we work with a, a lot of uh, universities, K through twelve schools, uh, and companies, uh, mainly because they are serious about making sure that their constituents, you know, their students, their employees, um, people, their, their their customers, people they're talking with, uh, feel respected. As you said, it just comes down to that. I was reading the origin story of this, and you went to Stanford uh, and studied philosophy, right? It's, it's incredible what, what, what people do in their backgrounds yeah. and how they end up in different sort of careers as well. Um, but this, this started, was, did it start at your sister's graduation, sort of the, the idea that something should be done about this? Yeah, that's right. I was actually uh, going to be a philosophy professor. That was my, that was my career track. And it all changed uh, when my sister's name was, was butchered at her graduation ceremony. Um, which was alienating for, you know, our family and friends there. Um, and I just realized something that we've now heard many times from our users, which is that there's a subtle sense of, subtle but real sense of alienation that happens when, when your name is mispronounced. So I figured there's got to be a solution to this. And uh, audio pronunciation buttons that are easy for people to uh, access make it a ton easier to both learn and remember how to say a name. Yeah, and, and because it's a reminder that names are, are more than monikers. And as we live in an increasingly diverse society, both in America and here in Canada, it's imperative that, that we figure out how to pronounce people's names properly. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I mean, you talk about diversity. As diversity increases, uh, a lot of the 
shift in focus uh, goes towards inclusion and, and then belonging, right? How do you how do you make sure that all the stakeholders that say uh, a company feel feel included and feel like they belong? Um, and so th th that's become a, a large part of I think why people are are reaching out to us to try to work with us because this one problem at least can be solved um, in a relatively straightforward manner. What kind of feedback have you gotten when it comes to situations? And I think back just to, you know, I'm 52 now, so I think back to when I was in grade school, and I think back to all the years and all the different people from different cultures that we that we that I met as I was growing up, and how often, and because it was mentioned in an article that you were featured in, um, how often people from different cultures sort of anglicize their names here on purpose, or were told to, in other words, because, oh, your name's too difficult, or your name's too long. Um, and I feel like there's been a real shift in that of late, and for, for good. Uh, but people must have talked about what that must be like to suddenly have to abbreviate your name so that, you know, so that your, your buddies from down the street can pronounce it properly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think the best way to think about it is when you abbreviate your name, you're, you're abbreviating your identity. That's how people feel about it. Um, I, a quick story you may have seen about my mom when I was deciding whether to actually turn the software uh, that I initially built into a, a company or not. She told me the story about how when she first immigrated, um, the staff at, at the uh, doctor's office said, we can't pronounce your name. Her name is Anupama. Uh, they said, we can't pronounce it. We're just going to call you Anna. So they abbreviated it to Anna. And she was like, it's basically telling me that that is not who I am. And every time I went there, I felt like they were treating someone else. Um, so that that really <laughs> that uh, that hit home for me uh, quite literally because uh, of my mom and I thought yeah. yeah. I, 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 it, it's yeah from philosophy prof to to starting to starting uh, name coach it, it's remarkable and, and two very personal stories right about your mom and about uh, your sister's graduation at two very important moments too right I mean certainly a graduation when you step up on that onto that stage to get your diploma it's one of the often one of the proudest moments of one's young life and uh, you want to hear your name pronounced correctly oh yeah absolutely I think I, I think uh, a lot of surveys have shown that the number one most important thing at a graduation ceremony is getting the student's name right, you know, for the student and for their family especially. Um, you know, definitely four years go by and the family's waiting for one moment and it's hearing that name set as they cross the stage. So, and, you know, initially that, that's what I kind of envisioned uh, the software would be uh, used for, right, I'd, giving it to different departments for the graduation ceremonies. It was only um, as people started reaching out to me uh, you know, basically saying, hey, we'd love to have this for uh, for more inclusive classrooms and, you know, for customer experience situations and things like that. But I realized uh, there, there's potentially a lot more here. Well, it's nice to have Praveen Shanbog with us this half hour. He's founder and CEO of Name Coach. We're talking about how to pronounce names correctly and why it's become so important. And really, there aren't many excuses to get names wrong these days because there are devices such as Name Coach that you can turn to. I was on your site earlier listening to some of the examples you have about how to pronounce mm -hmm. different names properly. So how does it work? How do you find how do you determine the proper pronunciation? And then how does it how does it work exactly? I know you use some AI in there as well. Yeah, that's right, uh, which is all the rage now with ChatGPT. Uh, but the, the software is meant to make it easier to help anyone at an organization uh, pronounce any name correctly. And, and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the basic idea is that we can embed uh, audio name pronunciations, little buttons, and phonetic spellings into tools that people are already using um, uh, every day, like Gmail, Outlook, 
Salesforce classroom management software like Canvas and a bunch of other systems. Um, and it's really, you know, for, for the user, it's, it's pretty easy on the surface, but under the hood, that's where uh, some of this AI comes in. Um, and so we basically have a, a system that ensures that the pronunciations uh, we are providing are genuinely the way that, that people say a particular name, but also recommending the most common pronunciation um, or the most, you know, the most likely pronunciation based on where a person is from uh, or other information that, that we might have about them. And I think we might be the only uh, folks in the world to have data on this, but there is a surprisingly large proportion of names where there are multiple ways to say them. Right. Yes, of course, depending on where the person is from, right? I mean, it, it, whether, you know, from Portuguese to Spanish, I mean, across the Latin languages, for instance, they all change uh, quite, well, significantly is probably an exaggeration, but there are subtleties that one would want to know. Absolutely, yeah. I think when it comes to solving this problem, it's, it's really about accuracy, right? You can't, you can't really go 75%. <laughs> the subtleties matter. Um, and, and, yeah, our, our, our system uh, is, is designed to address those. Yeah, I, I, I read a quote of yours that said, we're on a mission to make name mispronunciation, name mispronunciation a thing of the past for everyone. How close are we to that? I mean, that's a, that's a, noble, a noble ambition for a philosopher, but it's, uh, how close do you, are, are we to that, do you think? Oh, I, I'd say we've made some significant strides over the past couple of years, but, uh, but still have quite, quite a ways to go on this. I mean, as, as evidenced by uh, Ryan Reynolds' video there. Um, yeah. eventually, eventually he won't need to make videos like that for, for his business partners. Yeah. I mean, where has it had the biggest impact? Cause I was thinking, I mentioned some of them off the top because they were mentioned in, in some different articles that were written about your product and others. Um, you know, schools certainly that, you know, when kids, when they're young, if, if, if a teacher mispronounces their name, it can kind of create an atmosphere where they don't feel quite as comfortable, certainly within organizations. Now I know within any company, there's a real effort on to try to pronounce names properly so that everyone feels like they're, they're, you know, they can bring their, you know, their authentic self to work, so to speak. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. Bringing bringing their authentic self to work, uh, and we've certainly heard that from a lot of organizations that it's important to them. And you know, what, one of the things that I've seen um, in terms of impact is is that people often do not call on someone or introduce them or include them in a conversation, maybe even subconsciously, um, when they don't know how to say someone's name. I actually noticed I was doing this when I was teaching, um, and, and and we've quantified that. We've seen surveys that have shown that. And then, and then when we actually hear from users and talk to users, it turns out that uh, after we have name coach rolled out at an organization, they actually get more included in, in their work conversations. It's, it's crazy. Interesting. That that. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, that, that makes complete sense that if you were, if you didn't, if you think you're going to mispronounce someone's name, you may avoid trying to use it at all. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and then and I, I think that's. That, or pronounced with, you know, in, in the classrooms, right? Because uh, impressionable kids, they have, uh, you know, and there's a lot more, a lot more room for uh, for people making fun of each other, um, and and so I think setting setting that standard, like, hey, we're just going to get the names right, make it easy, um, becomes super important in, in schools. Right. So what next? What next for for name coach? What's the next frontier? Yeah. So so we actually have quite a few. Uh, AI systems that we're building that, that kind of take this to the next level. Um, for example, we, we're building a system that not only tells someone 
okay, here's how that person's name is pronounced that you're going to go talk to, but uh, cater is the pronunciation we're giving them to that person's native language. Um, oh, wow. So it's kind of looking, yeah, it's kind of looking at both. Um, and, and that's something that, that we've seen uh, can be very effective for people in terms of language learning or pronunciation learning. Um, so we'll be incorporating that into our software. And, and then just getting it into lots of different systems. Uh, we're talking to some major uh, web conferencing systems, um, uh, HR systems uh, at, at organizations, uh, even in the healthcare space. Um, there's a few healthcare organizations we're talking to who really want something like this to help uh, create better rapport between patients and, and uh, healthcare staff. Um, yeah. so we're looking at setting systems over there. So yeah, there's, there's a lot more for us to do, um, and those are sort of the, some of the, the near-term uh, things on the horizon. Well, Praveen, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. I appreciate it. Good luck with what lies ahead. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Tupperware. Um, you know, there aren't many products out there where all you have to do is say the name of the product or the name of the company, and you immediately know exactly what the product is. So it's become so synonymous with food storage that people use its name when referring to any old plastic container, right? You call anything Tupperware, even though it's not, in fact, uh, the Tupperware brand. But, you know, at 77, the company is in pretty deep financial trouble. That's what's been coming out this week. They still sell relatively well. I mean, their 2020, uh, 2021 numbers were good, $1.3 billion worth of sales. But that's down nearly 20% from 2020. They did pretty well during the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and then it kind of stopped. And now they're really running into some trouble trying to transition from that whole nature of having those house parties to doing it online. They tried to put them in stores like Target. That hasn't quite worked out. And of course, there's a million pretenders out there, right? There's all kinds of different products that are very similar or identical in some ways to, to Tupperware that are either less expensive or more available, a whole bunch of stuff. So, you know, they really haven't been able to reinvent themselves in the way that perhaps uh, people who are fans of the company would have hoped over the years. But what a story Tupperware is. And I really found it this week when I started reading about, I was actually on holiday when the Tupperware stuff started to emerge, that the company was in really deep trouble. And, and on the way home, sort of read some articles about the history and the legacy of Tupperware. And I didn't really realize just what a massive impact it had had in so many ways on specifically American culture, but also North American culture and elsewhere. I mean, the queen, the queen kept her cornflakes in Tupperware. So the legend, <laughs> legend has it. So there have been many who've looked into this over the years. And one of them is a filmmaker named Laurie Kahn. Uh, she won a Peabody for this movie that she made back in 2003 called Tupperware. Here's a little piece of it. Tupperware's creator was a small-town inventor with oversized dreams named Earl Silas Tupper. The man was a genius. Not with people, though, with product. It took a genius with people, a woman named Brownie Wise, to push Tupper's product onto the world stage. When she came out, all the hullabaloo and the applause, and this was our Brownie. And everyone wanted to be like a brownie. There you have it. A great idea needs a great salesperson. In this case, it was Tupperware, so named after the inventor. But it was it was a it was a woman who turned this into uh, the the phenomenal success that we know it as from Tupperware parties and so on. So I figured, who better to speak to 
about uh, the legacy of Tupperware uh, and just what it meant uh, over the 77 years, even now, but what it meant in its early days to the America of the 50s and then what it continued to mean over many decades as it continued to sell very, very well. So I got in touch with Lori Kahn, who happens to be uh, in Israel working these days, and uh, she agreed to talk to us, director and producer, uh, the filmmaker, director and producer, writer of that Peabody Award-winning 2003 documentary called Tupperware. Lori, thank you for your time tonight. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, this really feels like an end of an era. I didn't think I'd be so nostalgic about about reading about sort of the potential demise of of, of the company. I, I think most people my age don't even think of Tupperware as a company. They think of it as a as an object, right? Uh, but we are. Yeah. It feels like we're approaching the end of, of an important era. I would agree. I think that you know Tupperware changed thousands and thousands of women's lives, and so many people have sentimental memories of particular pieces of Tupperware that their mother, their grandmother, that someone in the family had. Tell me a bit about the history of it, because it, the history itself is is, is interesting because it, it involves both a, a very talented guy and a particularly talented woman. Absolutely. So Earl Silas Tupper, who was a sort of tinkerer and inventor, who never, who barely got through high school, actually, invented Tupperware after World War II, when DuPont was sending out samples of polyethylene, a brand new plastic that they developed during World War II to insulate radar wires. And they were trying to get small mom and pop plastics factories to create new peacetime products for this wartime plastic that they'd created. And Earl Tupper got his hands on this and tinkered with it and worked with his machines. He had a small plastics factory in Lemonster, Massachusetts. He managed to, to create his now famous Wonder Bowl with its burping seal. Everyone, I think, knows the iconic shape of the Wonder Bowl. And what was unique about it was a seal that would shut airtight. And it was a product that wouldn't break like glass, you know, that people were storing their things in, in glass containers in their fridge. It was going to keep food fresher longer, but it was collecting dust on department store shelves. He had no idea how to market it. And along comes this woman named Brownie Wise, who was selling his product at home parties in Detroit. And she called up the factory one day to complain that her order was late yet again. And she says, I insist on speaking to Mr. Tupper himself. And Tupper got onto the phone and he said, what in the world are you doing? You are selling more than all the department stores. She said, home parties, take it out of the department stores, only sell it at home parties. And he was intrigued and he said, tell me more. And then said, if I fly you east, will you explain how this all works? And he hired her on the spot and it's Brownie Wise who built the empire for Earl Tupper. And she never got past eighth grade. I mean, this was two people who'd never been to college who really created together this phenomenon that is an international brand name like Kleenex or Coke or something. I mean, they put Tupperware on the map together. Although Brownie deserves the credit for really getting it out into the world. Earl invented all the pieces. Yeah, they didn't sell themselves, right, clearly. But the, the Tupperware party also lands at a time, uh, a particular time in women's history in North America as well. 
Absolutely. So during World War II, there were a lot of working class women who had jobs in factories helping to build ships and whatever other munitions and things needed to be built for the war. And after the war, they were told to sort of go back to the kitchen and make room for the guys who were coming home from their wartime duty. Even if you weren't somebody who'd worked in a factory in World War II, the options that were open to you were limited. So Brownie understood this, and here was something that she could offer to anybody, a job that was available, selling things at home parties, selling Tupperware in particular at home parties. And it was something you could do part-time, control your own hours, and not threaten your husband. You could say, oh, honey, I'm just having parties. Remarkable. I mean, one of the things that I, that I, in looking back at the history that's also so profoundly interesting about it, I mean, first of all, it, it was kind of the gig economy before there was the gig economy to some extent, although it's always existed somewhere in some shape and form. But for the 50s, it became, and it was also exclusive to get the product. You, you know, to, to know someone who was having a Tupperware party was became something uh, celebrated. Absolutely. Well, Earl had a patent on this famous seal, the seal that would seal something airtight. Until his patent ran out, it was the only place that you could buy Tupperware was at a Tupperware party. And so it was not only a sort of an invitation you wanted so that you could buy it, but they also made the parties fun and people played games and gave out small prizes at the parties. And it was a social event. And yet the relationship between Tupper and Wise does not end well, right? It's really sad and not predictable. I mean, I think people, when they watch my film, don't see it coming. No. And as I was reading through the papers of Earl Tupper and Brownie Wise at the archives, I didn't see it coming either. And what happens is Earl wanted his product to be center stage, the focus of all attention. He didn't want his image around. I mean, there are hardly any photographs of Earl Tupper. But what, what happened is that they promoted Brownie. They went to an advertising firm early in the company's history. And the advertising company told them, you've got a great product and you've got an interesting marketing mechanism, but other people have similar things that they're doing. But what's really unique is this female corporate executive. I would run with that. That should be your lead. So they did that. And Brownie was the first woman ever to be on the cover of Business Week magazine. She was in all sorts of other women's magazines, sales magazines. She was in all of the publications that Tupperware itself put out. They had a newsletter, they had magazines, and she was the queen bee. And Tupper, I think, just couldn't stand seeing her get all the credit for the company's success. The other thing that happened is that the company was doing so well, it was growing exponentially. And Justin Dart of Rexall Drug and Chemical came to him and said, I'm interested in buying your company but not with a woman who's in charge. So the two of those things together, he starts to sort of get really sort of picky with her about little things that never had driven him nuts before. Um, like, why did you do this? And why did you, you know, give out books at the, your, the books that you wrote at the Jubilee and why this and why that? Their relationship sort of spirals out of control and he fires her. He flies down to Florida from Massachusetts 
and says, you're out. It meant that she had to leave not only the job, which she didn't see coming at all, but her house was owned by Tupperware. And a lot of her clothing had been bought by Tupperware because she gave her clothing away as gifts to her salespeople. So she was pushed out with nothing more than a one-year salary. Filmmaker Lori Kahn is with us, director, producer, and writer of the Peabody Award-winning documentary Tupperware. We're talking about Tupperware, the company. It's been in the news again. The company is in financial trouble after 77 years. It looked like it might be something uh, that will spell the end of the company as we know it, at least probably not the product, which is synonymous nowadays to any to most people with anything that looks like a plastic object with a cover on it that seals, right? That uh, that, yeah. that famous seal. Uh, Lori, I mean, it, it's incredible to look back at what Brownie Wise managed to create had this inertia that carried on for decades that left Tupperware, regardless of who was in charge, kind of placed it at the center of this particular form of product. Yes, absolutely. I mean, she perfected the home party selling method, which, you know, basically was built on women's networks. Instead of a a door-to-door salesman, usually a man, which it had been in direct selling before Brownie and before home parties, It was a man going door to door, knocking cold and trying to get somebody interested. This, by contrast, was a woman inviting her friends, her relatives, people from church, whatever, into her living room so that they could listen to someone do a Tupperware party and show them how to use the burping seal on a Tupperware container. And they would have parties, they'd have fun. And then at the end of the party, the woman who was doing the demonstrating would take orders. And Brownie not only was good at motivating women to get involved in this and knew how to make it fun for people who were part of her sales force, but she said, this is available for anybody, whether they're you know divorced or single, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, it doesn't matter what religion they are. This is an opportunity open to anybody, whether you've been to college or not. And I interviewed more than 300 people for this film, and none of them had been to college. This was something where if you were really good and you rose up through the ranks at at Tupperware, from dealer to then manager, where you're overseeing dealers who are going to parties and running the parties, and then if you became a distributor, you could earn literally millions in the 1950s and 60s. And that was something that you couldn't do elsewhere. And then over time, I gather both the patent expires. Is that correct? And then also the whole nature as we move into the 21st century, the whole premise of how these were sold and the the mystique around them begins to vanish. And I gather the company, because it was doing so well with the old system, like so many companies, just didn't adapt fast enough to a changing landscape. Well, actually, the home party continues up until recently. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was making my film, they still had these extravaganzas every year to reward and encourage their salespeople, um, these Tupperware Jubilees, and they still sold Tupperware almost completely through home parties. So after Brownie, who sort of perfected this home party method and the way of of rewarding and and encouraging her sales force, after Brownie, there were other home party companies that copied what Brownie had figured out. I mean, Mary Kay and Longaberger Basket and all these other companies that sold things at home parties, they learned from somebody who learned from Brownie. Wow. 
but I guess I guess as we then now because they still sell a ton of this stuff to, to be frank. But as we enter now into the late part of the twenty or the late twenty nineteens into the pandemic and early twenty twenties. The, the business model becomes a little fractured, and 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 that's where we're at today, right? Unfortunately, given what an incredible legacy the the product has had. No, it's completely true, and you know Tupper sells the company shortly after he he fires Brownie in the late fifties, but the company, the women whom Brownie empowered, were able to carry on without her, and they she'd been such a good teacher, and they continue, and the company continues to grow exponentially in this country for another twenty years until the patent runs out. And then it starts expanding in the 60s, 70s, 80s overseas. So these women I interviewed who'd never been out of their small hometowns or out of their home state opened up Tupperware Guatemala, Tupperware Germany, Tupperware Australia, Tupperware yeah. India. I mean, the, it really- the queen, the queen used Tupperware. <laughs> That's right. Even the queen used it for her cornflakes. That's right. The company is very successful and Tupperware has this brand name that's trusted. And I think if someone else had been in charge of Tupperware, they might have taken that trusted brand name and expanded into all sorts of domestic products, clothing or furniture or other kitchen devices beside things that you store food in. And someone might have expanded the way Martha Stewart, for example, has right. and said, you know, you trust the name Tupperware. Why don't you buy all these other things that are now have the quality of Tupperware? But the company really stuck with plastic bowls. And once Tupper's patent ran out in the 1980s, suddenly you've got knockoffs, you know, rubberware and 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 cheaper knockoffs. And people might call them Tupperware, but they're not. And Tupperware then was competing. I find it sort of sad that they they never took their brand name and 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 expanded horizontally. Lori Kahn, uh, what a fascinating story behind it. And anytime you look at a Tupperware bowl, remember the long legacy that it has. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Tupperware. Um, you know, there aren't many products out there where all you have to do is say the name of the product or the name of the company, and you immediately know exactly what the product is. So it's become so synonymous with food storage that people use its name when referring to any old plastic container, right? You call anything Tupperware, even though it's not, in fact, uh, the Tupperware brand. But, you know, at 77, the company is in pretty deep financial trouble. That's what's been coming out this week. They still sell relatively well. I mean, their 2020, uh, 2021 numbers were good, $1.3 billion worth of sales. But that's down nearly 20% from 2020. They did pretty well during the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and then it kind of stopped. And now they're really running into some trouble trying to transition from that whole nature of having those house parties to doing it online. They tried to put them in stores like Target. That hasn't quite worked out. And of of course, there's a million pretenders out there, right? There's all kinds of different products that are very similar or identical in some ways to, to Tupperware that are either less expensive or more available, a whole bunch of stuff. So, you know, they really haven't been able to reinvent themselves in the way that perhaps uh, people who are fans of the company would have hoped over the years. But what a story Tupperware is. And I really found it this week when I started reading about, I was actually on holiday when the Tupperware stuff started to emerge, that the company was in really deep trouble. And, and on the way home, sort of read some articles about the history and the legacy 
of Tupperware. And I didn't really realize just what a massive impact it had had in so many ways on specifically American culture, but also North American culture and elsewhere. I mean, the queen, the queen kept her cornflakes in Tupperware. So the legend, <laughs> legend has it. So there have been many who've looked into this over the years. And one of them is a filmmaker named Laurie Kahn. Uh, she won a Peabody for this movie that she made back in 2003 called Tupperware. Here's a little piece of it. Tupperware's creator was a small town inventor with oversized dreams named Earl Silas Tupper. The man was a genius. Not with people, though, with product. It took a genius with people, a woman named Brownie Wise, to push Tupper's product onto the world stage. When she came out, all the hullabaloo and the applause, and this was our Brownie. And everyone wanted to be like a Brownie. There you have it. A great idea needs a great salesperson. In this case, it was Tupperware, so named after the inventor. But it was it was a it was a woman who turned this into uh, the the phenomenal success that we know it as from Tupperware parties and so on. So I figured, who better to speak to about uh, the legacy of Tupperware uh, and just what it meant uh, over the seventy seven years, even now, but what it meant in its early days to the America of the fifties, and then what it continued to mean over many decades as it continued to sell very, very well. So I got in touch with Lori Khan, who happens to be uh, in Israel working these days, and uh, she agreed to talk to us, director and producer, uh, the filmmaker, director and producer, writer of that Peabody Award-winning 2003 documentary called Tupperware. Lori, thank you for your time tonight. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, this really feels like an end of an era. I didn't think I'd be so nostalgic about about reading about sort of the potential demise of of, of the company. I, I think most people my age don't even think of Tupperware as a company. They think of it as a as an object, right? Uh, but we are. Yeah. It feels like we're approaching the end of, of an important era. I would agree. I think that you know Tupperware changed thousands and thousands of women's lives, and so many people have sentimental memories of particular pieces of Tupperware that their mother, their grandmother, that someone in the family had. Tell me a bit about the history of it, because it, the history itself is is, is interesting because it, it involves both a, a very talented guy and a particularly talented woman. Absolutely. So Earl Silas Tupper, who was a sort of tinkerer and inventor, who never, who barely got through high school, actually, invented Tupperware after World War II when DuPont was sending out samples of polyethylene, a brand new plastic that they developed during World War II to insulate radar wires. And they were trying to get small mom pop plastics factories to create new peacetime products for this wartime plastic that they'd created. And Earl Tupper got his hands on this and tinkered with it and worked with his machines. He had a small plastics factory in Lemonster, Massachusetts. He managed to, to create his now famous Wonder Bowl with its burping seal. Everyone, I think, knows the iconic shape of the Wonder Bowl. And what was unique about it was a seal that would shut airtight. And it was a product that wouldn't break like glass, you know, that people were storing their things in, in glass containers in their fridge. It was going to keep food fresher longer. But it was collecting dust on department store shelves. He had no idea how to market it. 
And along comes this woman named Brownie Wise, who was selling his product at home parties in Detroit. And she called up the factory one day to complain that her order was late yet again. And she says, I insist on speaking to Mr. Tupper himself. And Tupper got onto the phone and he said, what in the world are you doing? You are selling more than all the department stores. She said, home parties, take it out of the department stores, only sell it at home parties. And he was intrigued and he said, tell me more. And then said, if I fly you east, will you explain how this all works? And he hired her on the spot and it's Brownie Wise who built the empire for Earl Tupper. And she never got past eighth grade. I mean, this was two people who'd never been to college who really created together this phenomenon that is an international brand name like Kleenex or Coke or something. I mean, they put Tupperware on the map together. Although Brownie deserves the credit for really getting it out into the world. Earl invented all the pieces. Yeah, they didn't sell themselves, right, clearly. But the, the Tupperware party also lands at a time, uh, a particular time in women's history in North America as well. Absolutely. So during World War II, there were a lot of working class women who had jobs in factories helping to build ships and whatever other munitions and things needed to be built for the war. And after the war, they were told to sort of go back to the kitchen and make room for the guys who were coming home from their wartime duty. Even if you weren't somebody who'd worked in a factory in World War II, the options that were open to you were limited. So Brownie understood this. And here was something that she could offer to anybody, a job that was available, selling things at home parties, selling Tupperware in particular at home parties. And it was something you could do part-time, control your own hours, and not threaten your husband. You could say, oh, honey, I'm just having parties. Remarkable. I mean, one of the things that I, that I, in looking back at the history that's also so profoundly interesting about it, I mean, first of all, it, it was kind of the gig economy before there was the gig economy to some extent, although it's always existed somewhere in some shape and form. But for the 50s, it became, and it was also exclusive to get the product you, you know, to, to know someone who was having a Tupperware party was became something uh, celebrated. Absolutely. Well, Earl had a patent on this famous seal, the seal that would seal something airtight. Until his patent ran out, it was the only place that you could buy Tupperware was at a Tupperware party. And so it was not only a sort of an invitation you wanted so that you could buy it, but they also made the parties fun and people played games and gave out small prizes at the parties. And it was a social event. And yet the relationship between Tupper and Wise does not end well, right? It's really sad and not predictable. I mean, I think people, when they watch my film, don't see it coming. No. And as I was reading through the papers of Earl Tupper and Brownie Wise at the archives, I didn't see it coming either. And what happens is Earl wanted his product to be center stage, the focus of all attention. He didn't want his image around. I mean, there are hardly any photographs of Earl Tupper. But what, what happened is that they promoted Brownie. They went to an advertising firm early in the company's history. And the advertising company told them, you've got a great 
product and you've got an interesting marketing mechanism, but other people have similar things that they're doing. But what's really unique is this female corporate executive. I would run with that. That should be your lead. So they did that. And Brownie was the first woman ever to be on the cover of Business Week magazine. She was in all sorts of other women's magazines, sales magazines. She was in all of the publications that Tupperware itself put out. They had a newsletter. They had magazines. And she was the queen bee. And Tupper, I think just couldn't stand seeing her get all the credit for the company's success. The other thing that happened is that the company was doing so well, it was growing exponentially. And Justin Dart of Rexall Drug and Chemical came to him and said, I'm interested in buying your company, but not with a woman who's in charge. So the two of those things together, he starts to sort of get really sort of picky with her about little things that never had driven him nuts before. Um, like, why did you do this? And why did you, you know, give out books at the, your, the books that you wrote at the Jubilee and why this and why that? Their relationship sort of spirals out of control and he fires her. He flies down to Florida from Massachusetts and says, you're out. It meant that she had to leave not only the job, which she didn't see coming at all, but her house was owned by Tupperware. And a lot of her clothing had been bought by Tupperware because she gave her clothing away as gifts to her salespeople. So she was pushed out with nothing more than a one-year salary. Filmmaker Lori Kahn is with us, director, producer, and writer of the Peabody Award-winning documentary Tupperware. We're talking about Tupperware, the company. It's been in the news again. The company is in financial trouble after 77 years. It looks like it might be something uh, that will spell the end of the company as we know it, at least. Probably not the product, which is synonymous nowadays to any to most people with anything that looks like a plastic object with a cover on it that seals, right? That uh, that yeah. that famous seal. Uh, Lori, I mean, it, it's incredible to look back at what Brownie Wise managed to create had this inertia that carried on for decades that left Tupperware, regardless of who was in charge, kind of placed it at the center of this particular form of product. Yes, absolutely. I mean, she perfected the home party selling method, which, you know, basically was built on women's networks. Instead of a a door-to-door salesman, usually a man, which it had been in direct selling before Brownie and before home parties, It was a man going door to door, knocking cold and trying to get somebody interested. This, by contrast, was a woman inviting her friends, her relatives, people from church, whatever, into her living room so that they could listen to someone do a Tupperware party and show them how to use the burping seal on a Tupperware container. And they would have parties, they'd have fun. And then at the end of the party, the woman who was doing the demonstrating would take orders. And Brownie not only was good at motivating women to get involved in this and knew how to make it fun for people who were part of her sales force, but she said, this is available for anybody, whether they're, you know, divorced or single, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, it doesn't matter what religion they are. This is an opportunity open to anybody, whether you've been to college or not. And I interviewed more than 300 people for this film, and none of them had been to college. This was something where 
if you were really good and you rose up through the ranks at, at Tupperware from dealer to then manager where you're overseeing dealers who are going to parties and running the parties, and then if you became a distributor, you could earn literally millions in the 1950s and 60s. And that was something that you couldn't do elsewhere. And then over time, I, I gather both the patent expires. Is that correct? And then also the whole nature as we move into the 21st century, the whole premise of how these were sold and the, the mystique around them begins to vanish. And I gather the company, because it was doing so well with the old system, like so many companies, just didn't adapt fast enough to a changing landscape. Well, actually, the home party continues up until recently. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was making my film, they still had these extravaganzas every year to reward and encourage their salespeople, um, these Tupperware Jubilees, and they still sold Tupperware almost completely through home parties. So after Brownie, who sort of perfected this home party method and the way of, of rewarding and, and encouraging her sales force, after Brownie, there were other home party companies that copied what Brownie had figured out. I mean, Mary Kay and Longaberger Basket and all these other companies that sold things at home parties, they learned from somebody who learned from Brownie. Wow. But I guess I guess as we then now, because they still sell a ton of this stuff, to, to be frank, but as we enter now into the late part of the 20 or the late 2019s into the pandemic and early 2020s, the, yeah. the business model becomes a little fractured. And, and, and that's where we're at today, right? Unfortunately, given what an incredible legacy the, the product has had. No, it's completely true. And, you know, Tupper sells the company shortly after he's, he fires Brownie in the late 50s. But the company, the women whom Brownie empowered were able to carry on without her. And they, she'd been such a good teacher. And they continue, and the company continues to grow exponentially in this country for another 20 years until the patent runs out. And then it starts expanding in the 60s, 70s, 80s overseas. So these women I interviewed who'd never been out of their small hometowns or out of their home state, opened up Tupperware Guatemala, Tupperware Germany, Tupperware Australia, Tupperware yeah. India. I mean, the, it really- the queen, the queen used Tupperware. That's right. Even the queen used it for her cornflakes. That's right. The company is very successful and Tupperware has this brand name that's trusted. And I think if someone else had been in charge of Tupperware, they might've taken that trusted brand name and expanded into all sorts of domestic products, clothing or furniture or other kitchen devices beside things that you store food in. And someone might have expanded the way Martha Stewart, for example, has. Right. And said, you know, you trust the name Tupperware. Why don't you buy all these other things that are now have the quality of Tupperware? But the company really stuck with plastic bowls. And once Tupper's patent ran out in the 1980s, suddenly you've got knockoffs, you know, rubberware and, and, and cheaper knockoffs. And people might call them Tupperware, but they're not. And Tupperware then was competing. I find it sort of sad that they, they never took their brand name and, and, and expanded horizontally. Lori Kahn, uh, what a fascinating story behind it. And uh, anytime you look at a Tupperware bowl, remember the long legacy that it has. Thank you so much. 
Oh, thank you. It's springtime, right? I mean, almost everywhere. It was like 30 degrees in Toronto today, I think, or at least it was yesterday. So they just sort of missed spring altogether and went from winter to summer. Um, but it's a time in this country we emerge from a really dark winter. And, you know, back in the old days when before we had all the, before you could buy an avocado 12 months a year, um, we used to have to rely on the seasons a little bit more, right? Seasonal eating was clearly out of necessity, more of a thing. And it got me thinking about, well, what happens in countries like Canada when spring comes and finally some stuff starts to emerge? So we figured, why don't we, why don't we look into what spring foods look like in this country? What kind of things we eat in the spring? What kind of things are available in the spring? And so Sarah Harrison, who is the Secretary of the Culinary Historians of Canada, uh, agreed to uh, share her time with us to tell us all about it. Sarah, thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here and to talk chat with you. Well, spring has been weird, particularly where you are, because it went from being cold to being very warm all at once, I, I know. But it is still spring as far as uh, the crops are concerned. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting time for Canadians because we're emerging from this dark, long winter into the promise of new things, but they're not quite here yet. It's rife with new things. <laughs> uh, so um, some of the things that I think about in springtime is actually maple syrup. Maple syrup is one of the first things that can be ready in, in Canada. Yeah, I grew up in Quebec. So yeah, maple syrup. This time of year, you have sugar shacks, Ontario, Eastern Ontario as well. So that's a big one, right? For springtime oh, in this country? Oh yeah, for sure. It totally is. Actually, the First Nations people were one of the, the first people to learn how to make maple syrup. In fact, they had a, a vibrant trade in maple syrup pre-contact, they basically would dry it and would trade it in the form of portable slabs. Maple syrup is a diverse thing because it can be used to cure meats as a sweetener for bitter medicines and interestingly as an anesthetic. The First Nations taught the settlers how to tap trees for maple syrup. And this is really important because before sugar becomes ubiquitous, maple syrup and its derivatives is one of the sole sources of sweetness in the settler diet. And what's really interesting is there's a, a farmer in Lumbury whose name is Ezra Doan, and he had a diary from 1871 where he records everything he did for the entire year. Wow. And when he and in March, he starts tapping his sugar bush at about 68 trees. And a couple of days later, in March 15th, he taps 300 trees and he finishes his uh, sugar bushing on April 8th. And he notes that he made about 600 pounds of maple sugar this year. And I mean, I, that's quite a lot for that's just a lot of maple. That's a lot of maple sugar. What did he it's do with a it? a lot. What did he do with it all? Does it say? So some of the other writers, they corroborate this sort of bounty. Uh, Catherine Partrail, who is a an English author who talk, who writes about her experiences in Canada during the 19th century. She shares her instructions on making maple sugar, maple syrup, and even using it to be turned into maple ink. ink. And yes, so I, I did not know that you could I turn sap into mean, ink, but apparently yeah. this is a thing. So this was a really big, a very a, clearly a very important one. I mean, we see, we see the legacy of it even today and all the different things surrounding the notion of the sugar shack and so on, that it's a time of year to celebrate the, this sweetener that, that, that is purely Canadian. Oh, for sure. For sure. Before sugar was widely available, Catherine Partrail says that a good stock of maple syrup is essential for preserving everything from wild raspberries, strawberries, 
plums and wild gooseberries because when the spring and summer season happens, there's a wild rush to not only gather things, but also to preserve things for the winter. Uh, we, we can't really imagine this in our modern supermarket sort of world, but getting food to get you through the winter is, is an essential tool in your toolkit. Right. And maple syrup, I mean, I, more than just something for pancakes and oatmeal, right? That's uh, well, oh. how, how interesting. I never thought of it being so, uh, having like, such so diverse like uses. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, now, there are other things that start to grow this time of year as well um, that I'm familiar with. I mean, fennel. Uh, is one which, which we don't use a ton in, in, but asparagus too. Fiddleheads are another one that I know sort of starts to originate at this time of year. Mm -hmm, that's correct. So a lot of the things that we can find that are growing, you can find outside. You know, if you think about in uh, settler times, as you're going through the winter, you're slowly depleting your your storage of preserves and dried salts, salt meats and salt fishes. So by the time April rolls around again, you're really hankering for something green. And some of the things that you can get are things like spruce tips, which are the soft new growth at the end of spruce branches that you can find on black, white, or sitka spruces. They have a kind of citrusy taste, and they can be eaten directly, uh, blended with sea salt, or candied with maple syrup. Yet right. another use and for maple syrup. here comes the maple syrup again. I've never yes. had spruce tips, I don't think. They're very small because the trees want to, they, they think, oh, it's, it's nice and warm. We got to make new growth. And they're not, they're not very large. They're maybe about the half the size of your finger. Oh, wow. okay. Yep. Oh, and another interesting thing is that you can get pine and spruce needles and you can boil them for tea, which mm -hmm. is another thing you can do. Many people might not know that you could use stinging nettles. Stinging uh, they're nettles. Like a, a, a plant that has a jagged edge, which will grow in clusters and nettles, don't want to be picked. They will sting you. And so yes, experienced the <laughs> yes, they, the they yeah. are vicious plants. Yeah. But you um, can, in so fact, what, what do you do with them? What you can do is you can just pan fry them because you, you need to gather a lot of them. They'll cook down to become very small, uh, like spinach. And like they spinach, taste kind yeah. of like spinach, but a little earthier. I read another thing online that you can, you can sort of grind them up with a mortar and pestle and turn them into pesto. I think that's a more modern thing. Certainly. Yes. Stinging nettle pesto sounds very modern and, and gourmet, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It sounds like something you might find in a fancy restaurant. Yeah, you might pay 80 bucks. 80 bucks. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the, other, the other things that I've been, I've been reading about that are big spring foods, I mean, rhubarb is one of them, right? So I'm not sure exactly when the season starts. It depends where you live, I guess. But to me, rhubarb was always a big one because my grandmother, my mom's mom, who'd grown up in London, Ontario, was a huge fan of rhubarb. And this time of year always produced the first rhubarb pies at some point. Uh, so another big one that we get at this time of year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so rhubarb is a a plant that has it has vibrant pink stalks, and it's it's kind of a it's kind of a hard plant, and they grow wild in about late April or early May. the The taste of the rhubarb is very sweet, so you can uh, naturally use it and put it into pies and tarts and other delicious treats. And you can also do savory things as well. My mom makes a really good rhubarb crumble which is delicious. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and I, it's a vegetable, which of course I, I learned again today. It's not, it's a vegetable, um, which is, which I found interesting. I'd forgotten. I mean, I think if you ask people, they'd probably yeah, guess. Yeah. Like you, you, you kind of think it, you're like, no, that can't be a vegetable. It's too sweet. But yeah, it, it totally is a vegetable for sure. And you can use it for savory stuff too. I don't think I've ever had savory rhubarb. 
I definitely remember reading that you can use it in savory recipes, but I don't I haven't remember. Ever, yeah, why waste it? I mean, yeah. might as well make you that gotta, crumble. You got to use every part of the plant. Yeah, you might as well make that crumble. Um, I, I guess a lot of le- sort of leafy stuff starts to come back. I mean, lettuce has been so incredibly expensive this year mm-hmm. that I, I imagine a lot of people just sort of gave up on it. But now we're getting our own greens back, right? At least yeah. some. Did you know that you can actually eat dandelions? Yes, that I did know. That I did yes. know, although I don't think I've ever eaten one, at least not since I was young and thought yes. maybe it was worth a shot. Yes, dandelions yeah. are the first edible weed that most people can identify and actually eat. Dandelion greens can be eaten as salad, and they were eaten as salad during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can gather a whole bunch of the yellow dandelion tops and use them for tea. I did read online mm-hmm. somewhere um, online, actually, that there is a cidery in Guelph, Ontario, that uses those tops of the dandelions to to ferment them into a dandelion cider, which is very interesting. Yeah, I wonder what that would taste like. I mean, dandelion wine, it seems to me I've read about dandelion wine, but I've never had it. Yes, yes, I also have read about dandelion wine also. Another thing that I have found, which I thought was very interesting, is, you know, we've all seen those people's videos of people trying to eat the cattail tops, which are catkins, when they've gone to seed and they they fail miserably. But that's because they're doing it at the wrong time. You have to pick them in the spring. Spring, while really? they're still green and you boil them like like corn and you serve them with salt and pepper really? you can also harvest the new the new shoots and the cattail stalks and boil or pan fry them like asparagus and the lower parts of the leaves may also be used in salads really i yes. I, I, I had no this is a fun another, fact of which fun, i i wanted to share with you because yeah, another, i just recently learned about this another fun springtime fact i mean things have again things have changed so much now but it is there has been kind of a renewed interest in trying to eat seasonally and spring does offer up a lot of different i mean it seems to me that summer there's so much there's such an abundance of stuff here in the mm-hmm. summer that it's hard to it's hard to figure out what not to eat in the spring it's a bit more complicated but some of those other good things uh what what fiddleheads do you know much about fiddleheads i've had them they're oh, very popular uh, I heard. I heard that they taste. They have a sort of vegetable-y taste, like they spinach do. or broccoli. Yeah, they're, they're spinachy broccoli, and and yeah, they're 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 quite delicious actually. And they're another seasonal one. I had a, was exposed to them because I had a, a friend of my mom's grew up in New Brunswick, and they're a big deal uh, in the Maritimes, and so that's oh, really? why I had them. But yeah, they're they're another tasty one. Now I've I've been abroad when uh, Germany, for instance, when asparagus season begins in the spring, and they're considered to be a major springtime food. Oh, yes, that's definitely true. Asparagus is a sort of an almost like a rainbow vegetable. It can come in different colors. There's green asparagus, there's purple asparagus, and even white asparagus. Yeah. And the reason why it's white asparagus, it's because they grow it underground and the chlorophyll that they need to turn green doesn't happen. So they just it just turns white. And asparagus right. can grow up to six or seven inches a day and you need multiple harvests to encourage that, grow plants that fast. to keep growing. They grow like a weed, right? They grow that they fast. They do. Wow. Any other yeah. any other any other spring recommendations now that we're uh, that, that we're wrapping wrapping up I mean, we've talked about maple syrup, rhubarb, stinging nettles, spruce tips, many things out there that you can sort of dive into in your uh, Canadian spring diet. One thing that I haven't tried and I think it's is very interesting. I kind of want to try it. There's a there's a plant called garlic mustard. It is an invasive weed which was brought over as a a plant to use in an herb in the 1800s. Due to poor mismanagement, it kind of escaped and is now growing wild all over Ontario. And it it is an invasive plant and it'll displace 
natural plants that grow in Ontario, like, like trilliums. You can actually gather them when they're in their second year seeding. Uh, the second year plants, you can identify the second year plants with triangular sharp tooth leaved leaves and they also have white flowers which bloom in may uh apparently my president sarah hood had a whole bunch of garlic mustard in her backyard one year and she gathered them and she pan fried them and sauteed them with eggs and toast and she just said it was quite delicious sarah thank you so much for your time i appreciate it tonight thank you i i appreciate being able to talk to you about it <laughs> 